Thank you for listening to the Redemption Church podcast. For more information about Redemption Church, please visit redemptionokc.com. You can stay up to date on sermons by subscribing to our podcast on iTunes. Thanks again for listening. Heavenly Father, thank you for life that you have given us. Thank you that that the work was finished on the cross, that our salvation is sure, that our eternity is secure, that new life is ours, and that we have been brought together in this thing called the church. Father, would you make us a people who are together, whose arms are linked, who are passionate and zealous for good works. Father, we might exalt your name and your fame in this planet. Father, I pray that you would do work in us even now. Father, stir our hearts and our minds with the truth of your word. Father, we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. We are in First Timothy, and I hope that you will open up your Bible and jump in there. Although, to be honest, we are going to bounce all over the place today. Uh, we're going to step back and work through a lot of different things, but uh, uh, we're in First Timothy chapter 3, and as we've looked at this, we looked at the same passage last week, and actually I've decided we're going to look at it again next week. So we're spending a lot of time here because I think it's important for us, and uh, just felt like we needed to slow down and really think through some of what God is, is uh, orchestrating in the life of our church. But you notice in First uh, Timothy 3, go down to verse uh, 14, uh, Paul says this, I hope to come to you soon. But I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Uh, These are kind of house rules for church life and for what this whole thing called the church is. And one of the things I realized, just as I talked to a lot of people, is a lot of us have had experiences in something called a church. A lot of us have walked into a building, we've attended a service in a church, uh, we've, we've gone and seen a building, maybe with a little cross out front, we've walked through the doors, we've shook the hands of greeters, we've gone in and participated in this thing called the church, but a lot of times we don't have an idea really of what the church is intended to be. And so we throw around this term, but we haven't really considered what our role in it is. And so we want to take some time to look at that today. And in a world where busyness is just at an epidemic level, any of you feeling busy as you get into the fall? And even feeling the pressure, students, you're starting to feel the pressure of your first round of tests didn't go quite as well as you wanted, so you've got to catch up on the second round of tests, and you're starting to feel the pressure, you're getting to the end of a season, the end of playoffs, you're getting to these things, and things just get tense work-wise, you've got pressures and things that press on you. We are just an incredibly busy culture, and we fill every gap and every moment with activity as much as possible, and in that, one of the things that realizes that we are, that oftentimes investing in a community feels foreign to us. It feels like a different thing to say, man, I really want to dig deep roots in a community. And yet what we see in the scriptures and just in life is we were created for deep community. We were created for deep roots that are invested in a place that give us the strength and stability of something beyond just the transience of our world. And so as we think about what it looks like for us to invest beyond the kind of cultural values of mobility and individuality and, uh, and our ability to kind of do our own thing, I think it's going to push on us a little bit to say, what does it look like for us to invest in a community of faith where we live together in the family of God? And yet, that's really what we're here for. 
what church is supposed to be about. It's a people that are linking arms together under the glory of God, that live for the glory of God, that say we want to reorient our lives around the Word of God, and we want to become people who continually come back to advance the mission of God in the world. So let me tell you just three reasons I was thinking this week of kind of why this conversation feels a little bit strange to us. First, by and large, most of us have not been taught our Bibles. That we, we, we don't have a robust theology of understanding of Scripture, Genesis to Revelation. And so we don't really even know how to ground this conversation. And so it feels a little bit foreign to us. Secondly, sometimes you use words like elders and deacons for leaders. And, and none of those terms sound like anything I want to be. Right? Like any of you go, I want to be the elder guy in the room. I mean, in our society, like you're going to do everything to avoid that. Like you want to Botox to avoid looking like the elder so that you don't begin to have the appearance of just being the old wise one that's actually diminished in our culture. And so we, the, the scriptures sometimes use strange language for these things. And we go, Man, I don't even know what that is. Like, I don't know what it means to eld anything. Like, so this just feels strange to us. Thirdly, I think in our experience in the American church, all of us come from very different backgrounds. And some of you didn't grow up in church at all. Some of you grew up in church uh, every week. Some of you grew up in Baptist world or, uh, you know, Presby Methodist world or Our Lady of the Turnpike world. Or, like, we all came in through all these different things. Some of us had drug problems, like actual addiction problems. Others had drug problems, like mom drug us to church every time it was open. Like, we just, we come from all these different backgrounds. And when you try to get us together, sometimes it can be this hard thing of figuring out, man, I don't, I think you're using that term differently than I am. And so this conversation can feel really strange for us. I think it's also strange because we all have experiences in churches that look a little different. So I want to do something uh, right now that's going to stretch us a little bit and <clears throat> maybe stretch me a little bit. I'm going to actually go over here and act like I'm, we're back in school. So I'm going to draw on the board. And uh, Chris asked me a little bit ago, and I was doing this, he said, did you work on your, your artistic skills this week at all? And the answer is no. And so you're in trouble. Uh, hopefully we'll make sense of this. So uh, really lean in, focus, and maybe we'll, we'll be able to do this. When most of us think about our experiences in church, let me ask you if you've seen something or if this sounds familiar at all. Uh, we think of church, oftentimes we think of, uh, we think of a stage that's here. Those are curtains. There's the curtains. That's a stage. You with me so far? Okay. Then there's uh, someone who's here on the stage uh, that everyone else, and then there's, then there's an audience that's out here, right? And so this is some serious artwork, right? So let me just label this to make sure we're okay, right? I can't talk and spell at the same time, so I got to do one at a time. So this is audience, right? This, oftentimes in our culture, we begin to look at as celebrity. Um, oftentimes this is what happens in the life of a church. And whenever you set up a church in that way, what happens is all eyes are where? All eyes go here. And too often... This has been the way in which the church has operated. And in the midst of that, when you think about what, uh, what, our, what impact that has in our culture, I think it's important to, to recognize that sometimes the way we are operate as a society rubs off on the way we, we operate in the church. I mean, we live in a celebrity-driven culture. In fact, celebrity is the most marketable value in our culture at large. We are the American Idol generation after all, Right? And so if we're the generation that was groomed on American Idol, it makes sense that sometimes that's going to rub off in terms of the life of the church. And so we're going to operate in some of the same, same ways. 
And what happens when we operate from this mindset is the church sometimes gives you the impression that your job is to be a nice person and help fund all of the production of all of this stuff. And this is oftentimes the way in which we begin to operate and the way in which we, we begin to think about church. And so um, what happens though when we operate that way is that we have to do a certain performance on the stage in order to attract an audience. And then whenever you attract an audience, then you've got to do just as good or a better performance to keep the audience. What you attract them with, you have to keep them with. So if you attract them with a prancing tiger, you've got to keep them with a dancing bear. Right? So you've got to continually do something to get people's attention. And I think it's important to remember that, uh, that this is oftentimes the way in which we have thought about this. And what I see it, in terms of the way it affects us is I see people becoming increasingly cynical about the church. That we just become very down about the way this whole thing operates. And we just look at it and go, man, somehow that feels a long ways from Jesus saying, take up your cross and follow me. And somehow we have a hard time imagining Jesus sitting down with his disciples and creating that sort of a thing. So let me tell you where all this began. This actually began back in the 1830s. It actually probably began before that. It probably began long before that in terms of there's been, uh, there's been a continual battle in, in throughout, throughout all of human history. But 1830s, there's a guy named Charles Finney in Second Great Awakening created this big movement of revivalism. And in the middle of this movement, he gave us what he called new measures on how to do church. And so these new measures that he began to operate in, in terms of how to operate in the church uh, really involved a longer meeting. So he stretched them out, a dramatic, if not theatrical elements. He began putting pressure on people to make decisions. Before that, they would speak the truth and allow God to work and then process that over time. But he began fixing on this moment saying, no, we're going to make a decision right here. We're going to, and so he began to, and they created what they called anxious benches. And they invited people to come down and to sweat and worry over where they are spiritually and what's going on and began to put this kind of emotional pressure and, and, and honestly kind of a manipulation on people to make a decision. And in the midst of that, um, he would oftentimes plead for a long time to get people to make a decision. And even grew, and I grew up in one of those churches. Like, just as I am for 18 verses until someone comes forward. Like, some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Like, we're going to keep singing until some of y'all come. You know, and it's like, you know, and then maybe you start calling out. Like, I know some of you sinners. Some of you guys need to make some decisions. Some of you guys need to get rededicated for the fourth time in six weeks. Like, you know, you get that kind of a maneuver, that kind of, uh, kind of maneuver that would come out of this. And that really began with Charles Finney. In fact, one of the things about it, B.B. Uh, Warfield said this about Finney's theology. He says, uh, you could remove God from it and it would not change much of anything in the way he did church. In fact, Finney said this, religion is the work of man. It's something for man to do. He put it back on the focus, put the focus back on men. That it's up to a man who's the preacher and a man who's in the, in, in the congregation and it's just an act of man. And if man does the right thing, then God will show up and do something. So his theology said that when man moves, God will then respond. And so that's really how the spiritual life is meant to operate. So the effect long-term in the history of the church, especially in the American church, and I know I'm giving you a bit of a history lesson, but I think this is helpful for us. Whenever you think about the effect on us as a church, he began to say that the means justify the ends, that, there are, that, there, that we are to use techniques within the church's meetings in order to generate the responses we hope to see. 
And so there's a teaching, and you actually look at his books, and he delineates this and just says, you know what, let me tell you the techniques you need to use to get people to make the decisions you want to see them make. And what happens to that is you have a very man-centered religion. It becomes very man-focused, and it doesn't look like what we see in the, church, in, in the Bible. And so I think the effect of that over time is we begin to look at a man-centered religion and just think, and is that really worth it? Is that really, that doesn't look like the Jesus I see, and we've become cynical about the church and about the way in which we operate. I actually had a pastor tell me one time in a conversation that the business metrics they were seeing in the life of their church were now telling them that the Spirit was leading them in a new direction because the, the business metrics didn't lead up. And so here's what's happened in our culture. You've taken some of that theology, I think, of Finney, and you've wet it to uh, some business metrics and leadership tactics. So leadership's replaced discipleship. Marketing has replaced conviction. Emotionalism and surface experiences have replaced scripture and deep spirituality. And so you've just have seen a wholesale change in the way in which the church is called to function. Now, I say all that lightly because I recognize the irony of me being on a stage right now and you guys all out there and I'm talking to you. So there's a little bit of vulnerability here. There's a little bit of sense of, and I feel like I'm a little on the spot. And, and there's a sense in which this could also come across as very judgmental. And I don't really want that to be the case. I don't want that to be something like, hey, our little church is doing everything right and everyone else is doing everything wrong. That's not my heartbeat here. It really isn't. But what my heartbeat is, is I want you to love the church. I want you to see the church for what it's meant to be. I want you to, to look at the scriptures and understand what God's design for the church really is. And I want your heart to beat faster for it. I want your trust in God's church to be deep and profound. I want your desire to be a part of this thing to overwhelm you with gratitude for what God has done and bringing you together. And that we're just amazed as a people that God gives us the opportunity to live together in this Mexi group of sinners that are experiencing his grace and getting to know him alongside one another. That's what I want for you. And I think it's important sometimes to step back and say, and there's some ways in which we can drift and begin to think. I don't want us to think this is what church looks like. I think biblically, let me give you a different diagram and show you uh, kind of a different picture of what church might look like that I think fits the scriptural diagram a little bit more. Um, when you look at scripture, everything is actually inverted from the other, the other picture that's there. What if, instead of an audience, we were an army? If that was the people of church. And what if, in the midst of that army, God positioned leaders to help execute the the mission and the plan and that which he's, he's done. And we call those deacons because they're the, they're the boots on the ground leaders that are right there amongst the people saying, man, here's how you go. And they're deploying and moving and maneuvering things so that we're effectively achieving everything we want to achieve. And what if there's some other leaders that are back here supporting and praying and directing? Man, this is getting ugly. I told you, you're gonna have to hang in there. I can't draw. Um, what, if, what if back here we had some overseers who were guiding and directing and supporting and praying all of what is going on up there and all of us together are working in unison and all our eyes are out here on the mission that we're called to achieve for Jesus? 
Friends, that's the church I think you see more of in the scripture. And that's where I want us to focus today. I think that's all my art today. So you're relieved of all, of, all the pressure of that. So what if you thought about, began to think about church a little bit differently and we began to see ourselves that way? What if you, as church members, began to see yourselves as, I'm the front line. I'm not the audience receiving the ministry, but I'm actually the front line of the ministry. I'm the front line of the mission. I'm the one that's executing everything that God wants us to do. That inverts and turns everything on its head and gives us a new orientation to what we're really to be about. And when we begin this conversation of leadership, I think it's important for us to see that that's what this thing or how this thing really fits together. So let me go back and um, it's interesting when you look at 1 Timothy. Uh, let me just say this. You, you look at 1 Timothy, the section in, in 1 Timothy 3 on leadership. Fascinating. I was thinking about that this week. 1 Timothy 2, what's the very first thing God says? You better pray. You've got, God has a mission that he wants the gospel to be proclaimed. He wants to see all men saved. There's this huge mission that's there. He's like, you better first of all pray, verse two. You get to the end of chapter three and he goes and he points us to Jesus and says that, that you better be trusting the finished work of Jesus on the cross. In between, he deals with leaders. Why does he couch it between those two things? Why does he bracket this conversation on leadership? I think he knows that we're stepping into dangerous territory. That anytime you step into conversations about leadership within the church, you're stepping in dangerous territory. And so he says, look, before this conversation, you better pray. And after this conversation, you better look at Jesus because everything is going to be a little bit dicey from here on out. I love in the Gospels, there's this great uh, situation where Jesus is telling his disciples about kind of the end of his life and everything that he's going to, uh, to go through and what he's going to do. And then he, he leans over and there's these guys bickering over on the side. And kind of have this conversation like, hey, what are you guys talking about? And they're going, hey, Jesus, when you come back, like, can I be at your right hand, left hand? Like, can I be at the top in the kingdom whenever you come back and set your kingdom up? And completely missing the point. I think there's a risk of all of us doing that, that when we come to these conversations, it's easy to miss what it is that really should be our focus, which is Christ. So let me step back. We're going to look at some other scriptures. I know we're moving through a whole sweep of stuff. This is going to be like a 30,000 foot Mach 1 flyby of the church and just looking at an awful lot of stuff. So here's where I want to start. When you think about the New Testament, we think about this church, the church, you really go to the book of Acts. And the book of Acts uh, delineates kind of this launch of Jesus has died, he's been resurrected, he's uh, positioned his disciples and told them to go and pray until the Spirit comes. And he sent them out into the city or into the world and said, you guys are good to go and be my witnesses. And you're to establish these things called churches that are communities or families uh, everywhere throughout the world. And so he kind of sends the church out. And that's where all this begins. You get to an interesting, but you see several interesting developments in the book of Acts that are foundational to our understanding of the church. One, in Acts 15, uh, you see a, a really seminal passage that becomes important for our understanding, but it really is the first council of the church to resolve a theological question. And here's what happened. There were lots of people that were coming to Christ. Uh, there were uh, Gentiles and uh, it's the, the, all throughout the world that as the gospel spread like wildfire and as God's disciples were sent out and as persecution happened in Jerusalem, they were scattered and they began to go to these different places. They began to preach the gospel and lots of people came to Christ. And when they did, you had lots of diverse people coming from all different backgrounds kind of in this melding pot of this new thing that God was doing that was this people called the church. And so as you begin to uh, see how this works out, one of the things that happened was there was some conflict that began to bubble up. So you imagine people from different kinds of cultures. Um, like in our world, that's really hard to imagine, right? 
that you got people from different backgrounds, maybe different ethnicities, different socioeconomic classes, and for there to be some conflict there? That's a joke, right? Like, that's not hard for you to understand. Uh, that was the same in their world. And so you get all these different people, they come in, and you begin to have this conflict. One of them was that the people that kind of came from the old guard of Jewish religion began to say, you know what? Everyone else needs to look more like us. We want everyone else to kind of clean themselves up, and, and we think they need to follow the law. We think they need to obey the law and do those things. Now, more specifically, not just the law, what this actual conflict was over was over something called circumcision. Now, I don't know what you know about circumcision, but it involves a knife and a very delicate part of a human anatomy. And so, you, know, you guys understand what I'm saying here? Like, I'm not going to draw a diagram on this one. I'm not going back to the board. Like, I got to know you're with me, but I'm not going back to the board. That's, this, is a, this is as much info as you get. But you can imagine going into church, talking to adult men that are coming out of a different background and saying, hey, that's awesome you've trusted the grace of Christ. That's awesome you've come to faith. Next thing you need to do is get circumcised. And what, dudes, just be honest. Like, if that happened, you're just like, whoa. Like, this, this became something totally different just now. So there's a different conversation. That's what was happening in the life of the church. And they were wrestling with, like, how do we navigate this? And what is it we need to do? And so they, they came to Jerusalem. They gathered the leaders of the church, began to have this debate about what did we need to do to get everyone on the same page and bring them together in terms of the life of the church. Peter had this to say in Acts 15, <clears throat> verses, uh, verse 10. Peter stood up and said to them, uh, Actually, let me skip down just a little bit. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord just as they will. So Peter steps back and says, look, we couldn't obey the law. We never did. Like for centuries, our people have fallen down on their faces time and time again because they could not live up under the pressure and the weight of all the law that God gave them. Why would we take these new believers and say, hey, why don't you try to do what we could never do? He said, we need to be saved by the grace of God. They need to be saved by the grace of God. And so he sets the bar really low. He says, whenever people come into the church, the one thing that they have to do is believe in the grace and the faith of Jesus. That's what everything, that's what unites us. And so they set the bar really, really low and want to say that is the one thing that unifies us. And so in regards to someone's salvation and in regards to someone's inclusion in the body of Christ, and there's really nothing other than, man, do you believe? And have you, been, have, have you been saved by God? And so that's the thing that brings us together. So there's unity within the body of Christ built in that. But then you begin to see there's also this complexity that happens as we get this unified body that's all brought together by the grace of God and try to figure out how do we operate together. Acts 6, you see one of those conflicts. In Acts 6, uh, you, you see this kind of conflict that arises. And really the scenario is you've got widows that need to be taken care of. There's, so there's, especially in that culture where uh, I mean, not, not to be attached to a family meant you couldn't really earn a living. And so there's no way for you to provide for yourself. So the church would come around those who had been widowed and they would really provide for those needs. And what happens in the life of this church where it's a little bit messy because you've got all these people from different backgrounds happening is some people come and say, look, they're caring and providing for the widows of this demographic group but these people of this other demographic group are being neglected. And so some of the people were being cared for, but some of the widows were actually getting overlooked. They were kind of getting preferential treatment to a, certain, uh, to a certain group within the church, and that raised some tension, as you can imagine. And so people began to raise a stink, and they began to ask a question. Now, it's interesting. What happens in the middle of that scenario is 
they, they come and they bring it to the apostles. And it says that uh, Acts 6, verse 2, and the 12 summoned the full number of, of disciples. So the, the 12 leaders of the church gathered everyone in the church, the entire congregation, the full number of their disciples, and said, it's not right that we should give up preaching of the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So here you see this interesting scenario where now you've got these different groups that begin to emerge within the life of the church. So you have the whole number of disciples, which is the entire church. And it says that the apostles say, hey, this is important. We need to get this fixed. We can't fix this because we have a priority. We need to be preaching. We need to be praying. And this is what we're to be about. But you all appoint for yourselves seven men who will help lead this ministry to make sure that the widows get fed. And so you see this kind of interesting thing, this dynamic that takes place that I think is really insightful for us and, and really helpful for us as we think about the way the church ought to operate. One, we're one people united together. There's a whole number of disciples. And you notice every one of them is invested in the effectiveness of the ministry. That every single one, of, there's a reason why they call everyone there is because, hey, this is all of our, this is, all, this is an all y'all thing. Like this isn't just something the apostles have to fix. This is something all y'all are a part of. And so they gather them all together. And then there's these three groups that emerge. He says, why don't you select seven people that will, uh, and we'll appoint them to be in charge of making sure the ministry actually happens. And so a lot of people think these are the first deacons in the church, that this is kind of where that began, this idea that, I mean, there's people that are gonna be kind of the, the frontline executors to make sure the ministry is effective and make sure it's happening the way it's supposed to be. So you've got, whole gathering of the disciples, deacons or leaders that are making sure the ministry happens. And then you've got these other leaders that are saying, man, we've got to focus on our priority. And it's not that that doesn't matter, but we can't do everything. And so we're going to set aside our time and really focus on this. And so you begin to see this kind of differentiation within the body of Christ, within the church of different kinds of leaders that are performing different functions and different roles. Now, here's why I think that's really important for us. Uh, that very much describes life in the church right? There's just, there's a reality that one person can't do it all. There's a reality that, that, you know, there's kind of the stereotypical joke in the life of the church that it's, you know, a few people doing all the work and everyone else receiving it. It's like the, the old uh, Bud Wilkinson joke about football. You know, that football fields 22 people in desperate need of rest and 60,000 people in desperate need of exercise. You know, so you get these kind of jokes that have infiltrated the life of the church, but that's kind of the way in which you think about this. But what you see in Acts is everyone's invested, right? That everyone has a role to play. Everyone has a task and something that they could do, and they're all working on that in, in their own sort of a way. Now, as you think about kind of the way in which these differences begin to show up, you get to 1 Timothy and you see these roles that are defined even a little more. So 1 Timothy 3, you see, he gives you, he says, if anyone aspires to the task of overseer, you down to verse 8 and it's, you know, likewise deacons. And so you get overseers and deacons or elders and deacons. And you see a little more uh, how this is uh, kind of clarified even more as far as what, is, <clears throat> what these roles are. Now, before we get to that, here's where I want us to, to reflect on the rest of our time. What is God doing in this thing called the church? What is the big picture of what it is that he wants to do in us? And I think it's important for us to understand this thing called grace a little more uh, because I think this is what has to drive us. This is what has to propel us kind of as we move forward. Let me read with you a passage that has kind of stopped me in my tracks over the last few months and I've been just meditating on and thinking about. Titus 2, 
Uh, this is one of those that I think it's important for us to understand uh, really what God's up to in, in our individual lives, but also in our collective lives uh, in terms of life of the church. Titus 2 um, says this, 2, 11 to 14. For the grace of God has appeared. So what, what's driving this? Grace. Grace is the instrument. Grace is the vehicle that propels this thing forward. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age. So grace brought salvation to us, but grace also trains us to become something new. See, grace isn't just a do-over card. Grace isn't just a get-out-of-jail-free card. Grace isn't just everything you've done in the past you can forget about and you can start over and work your way into something better. Grace is something that comes to us, saves us, regenerates us, restores us, and begins to train us to live differently as we move forward. And so he says, bringing salvation for all people, yes, but also training us to renounce ungodliness, worldly passions, to live self-controlled. So it trains us to say no to some things and trains us to say yes to some things. Trains us to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age, meaning right here, right now, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. And can I get that slide? I think there's a slide there on that last um, part people of his own possession who are zealous for good works. Here's the thing. God redeemed us in Christ in order to set apart for himself a people who are his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Friends, that's the church. That's what we're to be about. That's the thing that's supposed to compel and drive us. And what is it that, what is it that pushes us forward in that? It's grace. It's not law. It's not guilt. It's not pressure that says, hey, you have to do all these things. You need to be circumcised. You need to follow the law. You need to do these things. It's grace that has so overwhelmed our hearts and caused us to love the Lord that we go, why would I resist anything that my good God wants for me? If God himself sent his only son to die for me, to restore me, to redeem me, to rescue me, to make me his own people and his own possession, to bring me to his family, to adopt me as his son, why would I then resist anything that he would guide and direct me to do? Surely he has my best interest in mind if he gave his only son for me. And so the grace of God overwhelms us and propels us forward. This is what the church is really supposed to be. Any of you have a police sticker on the back of your car? Like I support the, any of you remember those? I don't see as many of those anymore. When I got a driver's license, like that was, that was the key to learning how to drive and not get tickets was you needed to establish a relationship with the sheriff. And then because you had that relationship, you got a sticker, you got to put it on your car. And there was an assumption that if you got pulled over breaking the law, that he'd go, oh, you know what? You've got a relationship with us. You go right ahead. I think a lot of times that's how we think of grace. But that's not grace in the Bible. Grace isn't, it isn't, in the Bible isn't, wow, you've got a relationship with God. And so because you have grace, you can kind of let go of everything. And anytime you do something wrong, you come forward and go, hey, I got to get out of jail. I've got a relationship. I've got a sticker on my car. And so I don't have to worry about my sin. It's not the way it works. Because we have a relationship with the Lord and we want to obey, grace compels us to become something different. 
So if you think about church, think about it this way. A people of his own possession, meaning we're Jesus. We belong to Jesus. Who are what? Zealous, hungry, desiring, passionate about doing good works in the world. This is what, this is what church is supposed to be. Friends, can you just say this with me? Say, we are the church. Now say it like you actually believe it. We are the church. This is the church. You are a people that Jesus saved, he redeemed, he pulled out of, and he's training you to say no to some stuff, say yes to some stuff, but for the purpose of you're his body. I mean, he's, he's known by you. He's willing to say, look, I'm your head and you're my body. And so you're linked and aligned with him. You're a people of his own possession, zealous for good works. We're the ones that make him famous. They bring glory to him by the things which we do. Let them see your good works that they might glorify my Father in heaven. This is what we're to be about. So as you think about this one body that we're a part of, let me just uh, give you a couple other quick, quick hits on this. Ephesians 4, one of the things we see is we have different roles to play, but one body of Christ at work together. Ephesians 4 said, he gave, some, he gave the apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. So he gave leaders to the church to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. What is he talking about? He gave leaders to the church to build up the church and equip them that they might execute the ministry. Everyone, every, every member in the body of Christ is a minister. Every member is on mission. That, that's what the church is intended to be. And he gave leaders to the church to train and build up the people that they might build up the body of Christ. You skip down to verse 16 in Ephesians 4. It says, so that the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So the whole body, he says, when each part is working properly, builds the body of Christ up in love. And so it requires all of us doing work. And we're joined together in this one body of Christ. The other uh, illustration for that, what we see is that there's uh, one body that works together, but we have different roles to play. 1 Corinthians 12 is another key passage for this. It says, for just as the one body, or just as the one, <clears throat> the body is, excuse me, <clears throat> just as the body is one and has many members, all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit, we are all baptized into one body, and we are all made to drink of the one spirit. For if the body does not consist, the body does not consist of one member, many. Um, repetitive, a little bit redundant. Here's what he's saying. If we're one body of Christ, there's lots of different members of the body. All of us are unified together in this one thing that's intended to work together in a really healthy way. Any of you watched uh, ESPN, watch highlights last night? You're going to see James Harden's move. And there's a hilarious deal at the end of one of the quarters. James Harden was trying to get off the shot right at the end, and he's dribbling down in, in, in a really hurried pace, and as he goes, uh, and it was hard to tell if he was mad at himself or mad at the guy who thought he got fouled, but as he goes, he never even gets a shot up, and the ball just goes up in the air. And he turns around, and he grabs the ball, and he just goes, ah, and throws it down on the ground, and it goes, boom, comes right back up and hits him in the face. <laughs> and the guy who's guarding him just steps back and looks at him like, whoa, why did you do that? See, it's a, it's a funny thing when the body works against itself. And so he's, looking at, he's, he's going through these motions of all this stuff and he ends up injuring himself. And what was funny about that and why they showed it over and over in the replays and why it showed up in my Twitter feed all, all evening long was people were like, dude, look what he did to himself. That's crazy. You should never do that. Um, the church oftentimes looks like that. Like we're over here operating and part of us are going boom. And you're like, and then you're like, whose fault was it? 
Like, was it his eyes' fault that he didn't know where he threw it? It was his hands' fault and he took the wrong trajectory? That his body, like his back was supposed to lean back and he leaned forward instead? And Like, I don't know what part of James, body, James Harden's body messed up when he did that. I just know it didn't work and it looked really stupid. And so we all laugh at it. But how often does the church look the same way? That we're not working together, we're not working as we operate, and we end up just hitting ourselves in the face and giving ourselves a black eye. For the body does not consist of one member, but many. For if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And the ear should not say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body. That would not make it any less part of the body. Every part of the body has value, right? See, some of us need to realize how much value you've got. Some of you see you have envy of a different part of the body and you think, man, if I had that part, I'd be more important. And so what he's saying is the eye looks at it and goes, you know, or or, uh, in in this illustration, it's like, you know, this one part of the body goes, I'm not a hand. You know, the foot foot should never say like, I'm not a hand, so I'm not really that important. All I do is walk around, but I can't grab anything. You know, like he's just saying, it's kind of silly to think that way, right? And so every part of the value, a body has value and it shouldn't be that way. But also he says, if the whole body were an eye, then where would be the sense of, he- of hearing? There's also a sense in which um, some parts of the, of, of the body can be overvalued. Like, w- what if we were just one giant eye? Like, that's not really helpful, is it? That's kind of the image. He's kind of, I think he's poking fun. I think he's trying to be humorous a little bit here. He's like, if, if all we were was an ear, it's gonna be hard to get much done. You know, if, if all you are is, is a fist, it's gonna be hard to listen or to talk or do anything else you need to do. Like there's a value in every different part of the body. There's another part that none of us should be, uh, should devalue others. And it says if, uh, the, that it's ultimately God who reigns, or that the eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. See, I, I can't look at any of you and say, I don't need you, you're just a big toe. I don't need you, you're just a liver. Like, you know, but the body works together and you need all of it to function as it really is, is intended. It's interesting in this passage, who's in charge of it all? It says, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. Friends, I want you to understand today, and this is what I think is important for us. You are an essential part of the body of Christ. No one is undervalued. You have an incredibly important role to play. No one's devalued. We need each other. We can't look at anyone and say, I don't need you. We all need each other. There's an independence to the body of Christ that we're to operate. We also need to value the differences we bring to the table and recognize that we need eyes and ears and hands and feet and knees and everything to be a fully functioning, beautiful body of Christ that we're intended to be. And so every one of us is of great value. You know, the overwhelming emphasis as you look at this is that we're all essential and every one of us has a place to part, or a part, a part to play. It's important for us in this thing called the church that we all work together. Uh, friends, before we can talk, I think, any more about leadership, that's where I wanted us to land today because I don't want us to be cynical about the church. I don't want us to be skeptical when we talk about leaders of the church. God did not raise up the church and raise up leaders within the church so we could step back and go, ah, oh, they're all in it for themselves. Ultimately, it's about Jesus. Jesus is the thing that drives us. Jesus has to be the one we come back to. Jesus has to be the, the, the one that we're fixated with. We need to be a people obsessed with Jesus. He redeemed us. He saved us. He rescued us that we might be a people of his possession. 
zealous for good works, that we might make his name, name known in our city. You know what's going to really build the church's reputation and help our culture and our society be less cynical about the church? is when we look like Jesus, when we love like Jesus, when we serve like Jesus. Christ came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That, that's, what we, that's what we want the church to be. Let's go back to 1 Timothy. We'll, let's finish where Paul did in 1 Timothy 3. I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God a pillar and a buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He, meaning Christ, was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. It goes back to Christ. So anything we talk about in leadership in the local church, anything we talk about in membership of the local church, it's got to point to Christ. Christ came. Christ died. Christ was raised again. That's our hope. And that's what drives everything we are. We pray for us. Father, thank you for the life that we have in Christ. I thank you that we are free in him. I thank you that we are not under law, but we are under grace. Father, with that grace not be shallow, but be deep. Father, might it be a well springing up to new life within us, causing us to love you more. Father, uniting us as a people of Christ's own possession, zealous for good works. Father, in all of it, may Christ be our victory. Christ be our message. May Christ be our head. May Christ be our rescuer and Christ be our king. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Let me just say this. I love you. Christ loves you. Um, we're called to be his, uh, people of his own possession, zealous for good works. Let's go this week in the name of Christ and just serve people all over our city. Let's go do good. Let's go tell people what Jesus is like just by the way in which we live and the way in which we love. You with me? Yeah. All right. Ready break? Yeah. All right. Go church. We'll see you next week. Surrender.